Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. After weeks of dramatic battles, confrontations, political maneuvering, and plotting, this week is all about legal reform and administration. We're going to look at how the kings began to define their rule and their positions, and how the changing nature of Merovingian kingship was reflected in legislation and proclamations. It'll be interesting, I swear, in episode 49, A Framework for Being King. We've talked briefly about some of these changes before, or about the broader social changes that were precipitating them, but it's time to get into the details. The first official surviving document we have from a Merovingian king is from Clovis himself. It is a letter that he wrote to the bishops of Gaul in 507, as he was on his way to face off against the Visigoths to determine who would dominate Gaul. In it, he attempts to win their support for his cause, but importantly for us, he refers to himself in the letter as Clodovicus Rex, or King Clovis. This is the beginning of a trend we talked briefly about way back, the specific and careful use of official titles. Clovis was referred to as Rex Francorum, or King of the Franks, but only in sources from outside of Gaul. Inside Gaul, he is only ever Rex, or Patricus, King, or Patrician. Both in their own official documents, and in surviving documents from other sources in Gaul, the king's equidistant place between the different ethnic groups of Gaul was always maintained. This was crucial for maintaining their authority over each group and developing their own prestige. This attitude permeated deep as well. A collection of documents known as the Formulary of Markulf records specific descriptions of all pagans alongside Christians, so as to make clear the throne's authority, no matter your religion, and records the rule over the whole of Gaul, specifically listing the, quote, Franks, Romans, Burgundians, and the rest of the nations, end quote. Even when communicating to courts outside of Gaul, this formula was maintained. In a famous letter to the great emperor Justinian, King Theudebert lists the many regions and peoples under his rule. He also refers to Justinian as his Domnus and Pater, meaning Lord and Father, making clear the Frankish awareness of how Roman rulers were still a class above them. Still, he only refers to himself as Theudebertus Rex, implying to the Emperor of the Romans that his authority extends past simply ruling over the Franks. This attitude made sense in a society that had several competing factions. We've seen the power wielded by the Gallo-Roman aristocracy and clergy, and while other factions, like the Burgundian nobility, are less present in our sources, they were still influential at the time. Guntram's rule in former Burgundian lands depended on the support of these groups. But by the time we reach the end of the 6th century, this is starting to change. The rising power of the Frankish nobility 
which we've discussed at length in many episodes, was starting to change these political calculations. Around this time, groups like the Burgundians had been under Frankish rule for several decades, and the differences between them and their conquerors were fading. On top of this, the Frankish nobility had not only effectively challenged the Gallo-Roman clergy for authority in the cities, they had also begun infiltrating the clergy. Frankish bishops, abbots, deacons, all throughout the church, positions were being taken by Franks. When Gregory was consecrated as bishop in 573, the Franks were a small minority in the church hierarchy, and almost no major bishops were Franks. By the time of his death only 20 years later, this was no longer the case. Not only were the Franks becoming more powerful, the differences between them and the other ethnic groups were beginning to blur. I want to be clear about this. The regional differences remained strong. A Frankish tribesman living in the original Frankish lands along the Rhine still had little in common with a Latin-speaking Gallo-Roman from Bordeaux. But among the elite, these groups had been intermingling for generations at this point. Some Franks had begun learning the vulgar Latin of their subjects, and had become more and more at ease in the Roman cultural legacies that dominated Gaul. Think about it this way. You're a Frankish nobleman. You've done some service for your king, and he has appointed you to rule in his name in some region of Gaul. You're surrounded by Gallo-Roman peasants living on the massive estates of incredibly wealthy Gallo-Roman landowners, who control both the local church and most of the trade and commerce in the area. You want to consolidate your rule over the area and make it impossible for the king to remove you or your family from your newfound position of authority. What is the most logical thing for you to do? Well, you might say, using force to cow your neighbours into submission would be a first step for many Franks, and you'd be right. We've seen many Frankish nobles try this so far, but it tends to have mixed results. The Gallo-Romans have more power locally, and if you push things too far, you risk incurring the wrath of the king, which you can't afford. You don't have an independent source of wealth, and rely upon the king's name for your authority. How do you fix this? Well, you marry into the Gallo-Roman families, of course. Instead of trying to fight constantly, many Gallo-Roman and Frankish elites saw the benefits of joining forces. The Franks got to benefit from the established wealth and local authority of the Gallo-Romans. The Gallo-Romans got protection from other rapacious Frankish nobles and increased influence at court. This process was entirely natural and occurs throughout history, whenever a military elite has conquered a vast realm filled with a different ethnic group or groups. The history of England is basically the history of conquerors slowly meshing with the population. First the Romans, then the Anglo-Saxons, then the Danes, then the Normans. These factors meant that over time, the equidistant formula became less and less important as the divisions between the different groups slowly eroded. 
By the time we reach the kings we have been discussing recently, things have started to change. Childebert II, in a letter written between 584 and 590, first uses the title Rex Francorum in correspondence. This is significant, as earlier in his reign, he had been more traditional, simply referring to himself as Childebertus Rex. There are also the Capitulares, a type of Merovingian legislation, from around this time that begin using the Rex Francorum title as well. The oldest comes from Guntram, around 585. But the change wasn't complete, and in the 587 Treaty of Underlo, Guntram, Childebert, and Brunhild are all referred to without the Frankish qualifier. The Capitulares also highlight something we haven't talked about in a while, Roman influence. Way back at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about Clovis and how he used Roman titles and styles to assert his own authority. From the beginning, Merovingian kingship was a blend of Frankish and Roman ideas of rulership. Our old friend Helmut Reimers notes that, quote, the Capitulares clearly followed the tradition of decrees by Roman rulers in terms of both their language and contents, end quote. Unlike their Frankish predecessors, Merovingian kings sought to centralize power and wielded a level of authority much closer to a Roman emperor than a king of a tribal confederation. It is no surprise, then, that when it came to legislation, they modelled themselves after the effective government of the Romans. While nowhere near as effective as Roman administration, the Merovingians were certainly more hands-on rulers than their Frankish predecessors. But the other side of this is the Lex Salica, the famous Salic law. Chrymitz notes that it, quote, passes down a legal tradition which presents the legislation as based not on royal authority, but on the consensus of a group of wise men, end quote. This is a direct derivation of how governing was done in the tribal confederations before the rise of a strong, centralized monarchy. It is no coincidence that as the Frankish nobles became more powerful, governing would become more and more based on consensus. By the end of the Merovingian period, the king would be effectively reduced to a figurehead, with all important decisions coming from the noble class. Eventually, another strong dynasty would emerge and try to re-establish monarchical centralization, but they too would eventually fall to the nobles' demands for influence in governmental decisions. This conflict between the crown and the nobles would continue for centuries, and the roots of things like feudalism and absolutism can be found in the conflicting Roman and Frankish legacies adopted by the Merovingians. I want us to return for the moment to the trials of Praetextatus and Gregory. These are not the only examples, but are the most prominent of the role of the Merovingian king as a judge. Of course, the modern idea of a judge is still a ways away, 
But the role of the king as a dispenser of justice, a legacy that will permeate the Middle Ages, can be seen in these trials. Chilperic's role in the trials, listening to arguments, questioning witnesses, seeking to find some sort of consensus in the area, then dispensing verdicts and punishments. This would be probably the most important part of Merovingian kingship moving forward. Let's compare Chilperic's actions in those trials with what we know about Clovis dispensing justice. In the Vase of Soissons incident, Clovis reveals how his rise to power was a departure from traditional Frankish ideas. We have mixed evidence of the traditions of justice from Germanic tribes from before the fall of Western Rome, thanks to the limited perspective of our Roman sources. But what we have suggests an approach more based around consensus. Accused either had to convince the community, or sometimes an elder of the community was appointed to oversee the proceedings. We also have some evidence of men whose job it was to recite the law, an important role in a society that relied upon oral tradition. Chiefs and kings had some legal authority to dispense justice, but it was not absolute. When Clovis felt wronged, he did not seek justice by appealing to the community. He did not ask an elder to recite the law. He simply split the man's head open with an axe in cold blood. The trials we saw Chilperic preside over certainly had more Roman influences, unsurprising given the Gallo-Roman dominance amongst the clergy of the time, but he was also hearkening back to a more traditional type of Frankish justice. This would become more and more important with the rise of the nobility. When powerful nobles came into conflict, who had the authority to decide in the dispute? The king, of course. As the only person of a higher status, the king was really the only one who could mediate and dispense justice to the noble class. And as the nobles became more powerful, the process became more complicated as the demands for fairness and process had to be met. Eventually, even as the king's authority over the military, the administration, even his own household, was usurped, his legal authority was mostly unchanged. The nobility simply did not have a better solution, so the later Merovingian kings were basically travelling judges, solving disputes as they toured their realms. A far cry from Clovis. Returning to the Lex Salica, there is one more thing I'd like to note. We actually don't have an original copy of the law, What we have is more like a living document of corrections, changes, revisions, and expansions throughout the Merovingian years. Unlike a modern legal code, or even the contemporary work of the Code of Justinian, it is more like a living document that evolved as Merovingian rule evolved. An important part of this is the attitude to ethnic groups. See, when the Germanic tribes invaded, and set up their own kingdoms, they produced their own legal frameworks. These varied wildly, but the Burgundians and Ostrogoths both produced famous works that set out the differences in obligations between Germanic and Roman citizens. They were literally subject to different laws, 
designed to be rooted in the traditions of both sides and, especially in the case of the Ostrogoths, keep the two groups separate. For whatever reason, the Lex Salica doesn't really do this. It referred to each of the groups separately, as we've seen, but didn't go so far as these other codes in treating them as separate classes. The reasons for this are not exactly clear, but we can certainly make some educated guesses. Gaul was very diverse. It was easy for the Ostrogoths to separate themselves from their conquered Roman subjects, because there was only the two groups in Italy. In Gaul, you had Alans, Goths, Burgundians, Britons, Thuringians, and more. Also, the power balance was different. The Ostrogothic rulers were Goths ruling over Romans, with some compromises thrown in to keep things stable. Remember, the Merovingians were legally not Franks. They were equidistant, so they could use their positions as mediators to build their personal authority over the diverse and powerful interest groups in their large kingdom. Now, last but not least, let's talk about the church. Ever since the competing clergy had invited Constantine to intervene in church matters, leading to the 325 Council of Nicaea, rulers had been involved in church affairs. The modern concept of a separation of church and state was very, very far away. But that didn't mean the clergy were happy about royal intervention into their affairs. Especially in Gaul, where the authority of the bishops was immense at the beginning of the period, many clergy felt it was their responsibility to govern their own affairs. This had established a trend, with Clovis and Clothar mostly staying out of church business in order to preserve their special relationship with the church. But things had changed. Exemplified by Chilperic's religious legislation, Gregory might have mocked it, and today we might think a ruler messing with religion is a bad idea, but Chilperic was not only reviving old Roman ideas, he was also a few steps ahead of his time. Charlemagne would famously weigh in on church matters, even writing on the topic, and attempting religious reforms much like Chilperic had before him. He would also deepen the complicated relationship between the Pope and the Emperor when he was crowned the new Roman Emperor on Christmas Day 800. This event, like Constantine's presence at Nicaea, would have ripple effects that would change the course of European history and Christianity as a whole. It was not only the Holy Roman Emperor, French kings would also follow in Chilperic's footsteps and intervene many times in church matters. A pope would even reside in France for a while, causing a serious split in the church. Chilperic's actions in getting involved were just a bridge between the Roman and Western European successor states and each of their interventionist impulses towards the church. Alright, that's enough legal stuff for today. I hope this has been illuminating and helps us understand the changing face of Merovingian rule and the effects it would have going forward. Next week, we're going to do something a little different to celebrate our 50th episode. Connor, the other half of the Merovingian podcast, is going to join me on the mic. 
he's going to ask some questions about things we might have skipped over, or I didn't explain in enough detail, or just that he thinks would be interesting to elaborate on. Should be fun. We'll see you then. <laughs>